The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Monday, January the 16th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today, I am delighted to welcome back to the podcast journalist and author Helen Lewis. Helen was with us just a few months ago to talk about her radio documentary, The Church of Social Justice. And she's back now to talk about a new eight-part podcast series, The New Gurus. Here's a snippet. Everywhere you look on the internet, people are giving advice. I'm giving you advice, but you're not taking it. The advice is, ma'am, ma'am, you're average looking at best. Advice they claim will transform your life. Advice that gets them thousands or even millions of devoted followers. Would you say Russell Brand is your guru? Is he your inspiration? 100%. Are you going to hug him? I'll give him a kiss if he wants. (laughs) (laughs) These online prophets are telling us how to eat, how to think how to get rich, how to find love, how to manage our time. These are the new gurus. The gurus will always say, I have the secret wisdom they don't want you to hear. It makes it extra attractive, right? This is a story about technology and economics and the human desire to seek out charismatic individuals. Just as uh, people will say that the the Protestant Reformation and the printing press went hand in hand, so too did this birth of the new internet culture really give rise to this new religious landscape. Helen, the Church of Social Justice was about the relationship between religious belief and contemporary progressive politics. And as I remember, it was a kind of a spin-off or a byproduct of this new series which you released on BBC Sounds over the Christmas, which is called The New Gurus. Yeah, they both come from the same place, really. And was one which was confirmed by the new census figures from the UK, which showed a, a really steep decline in traditional religions, you know, particularly among younger people, particularly among white British populations, right? So actually you have lots of um, black African immigrants who are quite Christian, but the kind of white British population has had a really big decline uh, in its religiosity over the last sort of 20 years or so. So the Church of Social Justice and this programme are both kind of concerned with the question of, you know, is something else coming in to fill that hole, I guess? And one of our answers is, you know, these new gurus online, whether it be wellness or productivity or, you know, new political movements or crypto, and um, all of them had to have this quality that was a bit like being a belief system, right? It's not just someone telling you to eat your vegetables. It's a kind of whole ideology and ethos and sort of life experience about what it means to be well, you know, to be aligned with the universe, to have your chakras in alignment and, and, and whatever it might be. So we were always looking for that quality, that slightly religious quality to things. I wonder about that word guru. I mean, it's a substantial eight part series. And the first episode actually focuses in quite a lot on the figure of Steve Jobs, who is has a significant role to play in this in in two different ways or two related ways, maybe one for building the technology across which a lot of these new movements occur, but also because of a fascination with Eastern mysticism and Eastern religions and some alternative to the Western belief systems, which had prevailed in, in this part of the world anyway, up until up until the late 20th century. Yeah, well, it's one of the reasons we wanted to start with Steve Jobs. So we tell this story about what happened at his memorial service in Stanford 
in which he gave out copies of Autobiography of a Yogi by Yogananda, who was an Indian guru who came to America in the early 20th century. And some of Steve's friends said, you know, some people this was completely baffling. Who was this guy who was very into high technology, Western capitalism? And here he was this saying, this is the one book you need to read to make sense of your life. But then we go back to him in the 70s, being a young hippie, traveling to India to try and find his guru. His, you know, he had this idea that he wanted to be a priest himself, that he wanted to... There's a great story. I'm not. Quite, well, he turns up, which I didn't make into the series, about him turning up to the local Zen monastery with one of the early, uh, this is back in San Francisco, um, with one of the early Apple computers and trying to give it to one of the, the monks there who had to be like, I, I don't believe in worldly possessions. I'm sorry, like, what am I going to do with a computer? And that was the interesting thing to me was that he represented a fusion of those traditions, that kind of traditional Indian search for enlightenment that you see through the guru figure and Western individualism and capitalism. And maybe also a specifically American kind of kind of capitalism, which is kind of very much rooted in the idea of the, the capitalist as as hero. And then that can veer into everything from, you know, Barnum and Bailey to snake oil salesmen in the in the in the nineteenth century, um, to, you know, Kellogg who invented, you know, various kinds of weird dietary things. And it, you know, it is quite an American form, isn't it? I think. It is. No, I think you're right. That kind of evangelical capitalism. But it's something that has currency here too um there's a i'm going to say it's by brian friel's play faith healer which yeah. is a, an irish play and that has michael sheen did a, was was brilliant in that in the version they did at the old vic over lockdown that kind of incredible there's the idea of the incredibly charismatic individual who can help you transcend everyday life who themselves lives in this very big way like the one thing that came across a lot of these times in the gurus was they lived these quite odd lifestyles which is something you see in traditional societies in shamans, you know, the idea is that they have some access to the higher realm and they're not a normal person. And that might be the fact that they don't wear clothes or they live on the outskirts of the village or, you know, whatever it might be, but that they're not normal, regular, everyday people. And so those kind of figures, you're right, in the kind of capitalist form is a very particularly American thing, but it's something that has, I think, a kind of almost universal appeal, the charismatic individual who takes you out of everyday life. Definitely. And that can have a kind of a political valence as well. This is a politics podcast. And you know, obviously being a politics podcast, you know, like a hammer, every every hammer, every every subject is a nail. I do want to touch on the politics in a little while. But I think it's important for our listeners to make clear that one of the things the series illuminated for me anyway, is that a lot of these old divisions about what is politics and what isn't politics are in the in the course of really essentially breaking down. And so all these subjects like well-being and productivity and even financial investment, they kind of bleed in to people's political identity and beliefs, and they're all sort of connected, do you argue? Yeah, I think you're right. So something like wellness, which you might initially think, you know, as I say, eating a bit more veg and a few less uh, Twixes. But nonetheless, the, the origins of that movement, Kellogg, you know, had very set ideas about what he wanted American society to like. He thought, you know, masturbation was self-abuse that was draining the kind of great American spirit. And you look back to someone like George Bernard Shaw, you know, who was a vegetarian, but that for him was part of a, pol- a left-wing political programme about the improvement of the race. And in some respects, sometimes that does tip into eugenics in the early 20th century, this idea that humankind has got to be on this journey for self-improvement. And some of that is about eating the right things and only putting the right things into your body. And some of it is about about cleansing the race of, of impure people. So, it, you know, it, it's a very double-edged sword in that I'm, a, you know, I'm not going to say I'm against lots of wellness advice. Lots of it is really good. I think a lot of us do feel that we could stand to improve our diets and spend a bit less time in front of screens and all that kind of stuff. But then when it comes with those trappings of political purity, that is when it becomes a slightly dangerous ideology. And ditto, you know, productivity is the same. I, lo- I loved a lot of the productivity gurus. I thought they were really sweet 
you know, workaholics, which as somebody who has difficulty saying no to work, I, I really in, enjoyed and appreciated. But some of that is also about the kind of modern idea that you have to be constantly hustling, constantly working, that idleness is, is bad and a sin, um, you know, and that your company has a right to demand that you don't really want to have any time off or holidays or a private life. You know, that, again, a very kind of American corporate aesthetic, right? The, the aesthetic of the, the merchant bank or the high frequency trader where you're on, on, on all of the time. Um, always working, always generating value in a very economic sense. So, yeah, I, I entirely agree with you. A scratch the surface of almost anything that doesn't look very political. And it is there. Crypto is another example. The idea of an unregulated money system is, un, you know, as you would expect, incredibly attractive to libertarians, people who think the government should be just out of everything. It has no business regulating money. The funny thing is that as exchanges go bust, a lot of them seem to be on the learning curve where they discover that they really would like things like consumer protection, um, which is quite obviously there's a certain amount of slight schadenfreude in some of that. I mean, there is a way in which, you know, well-being uh, can, can uh, I suppose, slip into more extreme forms of alternative medicines, some of which you cover, can then slip into anti-vax and anti-science positions, then conspiracies about COVID. And before, where you know, where you are, you're tweeting about the great replacement theory or QAnon or something of that sort. Oh, that, um, absolutely. And that's something that you see all the way through is that because so many of these um, gurus, one of the things that they have to try and do is say, why am I, why am I, you know, uh, ideas not being adopted universally? Why am I not getting what I'm, you know, why am I not on BBC One or RT every, you know, every night propounding these great things? You have to posit a sort of slight conspiracy against you or the idea that the world isn't ready to hear your great truths. So there's a kind of anti-establishment baked into the posture in lots of the fields that I looked at. And then, as you say, what then happens is a kind of great soup where people who start off at yoga end up at QAnon. And there's no obvious relationship between those two things. And it, But it's just that the kind of communities that are into wellness practices are adjacent to communities that are, as you say, worried about the vaccine um, because they see it as fundamentally not natural and their whole ideology is about things being natural. Um, and, yeah, and the rebuttal to that is, you know, it was pretty natural to die at, you know, 20% of kids to die before the age of five and the average life expectancy to be over 40. And we've decided that unnaturally extending our lifespans is a, is a good thing. But that's the, you know, that's the, the logic of the, the, where it, the final end point for a lot of this logic about things, anything natural must be good. Why do you think so many of these people are men? It's very male dominated, isn't it? It is very male dominated and, and obviously perpetually kind of fascinating to me as somebody who's written about feminism for a long time. I have some uh, wild speculation that I'd like to share with you, which is that I think both either by biology or by socialization, I think it's a lot easier for men to do the thing where they ting, 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 tap the wine glass and say, everybody listen to me. I've got some amazing truths to share with you all. Um, so I think there is, I think there's some of that, that men, they're sort of self-selecting for men. There's probably some structural economic things as well about the kind of um, areas that, you know, that gurus tend to develop in being quite male dominated. So crypto, you know, banking, financial investments, traditionally very male dominated. And then you see crypto is an outgrowth of that and it's gurus an outgrowth of that. Um, and I think that some of it as well, actually, you know, it, it, a lot of it is weirdly tied in with the kind of ideas of a crisis of masculinity. So we looked at the intellectual dark web. We looked at um, dating gurus, romance gurus. And some of those you can definitely see as part of the backlash to feminism. The idea that men's social roles have changed really profoundly in the last 50 years, really, since the second wave of feminism, and that men are lost and need to recapture their masculine pride. You know, and that's something you can actually trace back all the way through the 
20th century, the idea that men have, you know, whatever modern politics is, it's now emasculated men and they need to reclaim these kind of strong manly virtues, has been a consistent drumbeat of politics throughout the, the 20th century. But that's what ties together, you know, someone like Jordan Peterson being a very good example. His fan base is very male and a lot of his content is about kind of pride in masculine virtues of strength and whether or not the modern world has become very feminized and very touchy-feely and as actually is there a place for for men in the you know in the old way that there once was can you explain to our readers our listeners rather uh what the intellectual dark web actually is who who came up with the title in the first place and who are the intellectual dark web i can try but uh there are many different definitions of it the uh, the phrase itself i believe was coined by a um a guy called Eric Weinstein, who is a venture capitalist, I think by back, by training a physicist. Um, his brother Brett was kicked out of an American college in a one of the kind those kind of American quote unquote woke controversies. So there was um, an idea from the start that this was going to be an intellectual movement of people who were contrarians, who were opposed to, you know, some of the excesses of left wing politics. Uh, and so the kind of founding document of it is a New York Times article from 2018 by Barry Weiss, who then worked at the New York Times, has now herself left the mainstream media for an independent Substack publication that she founded called the free, now called the Free Press. Uh, and so this idea was these were renegades, right? They were people who couldn't make it within um, academia, which was is dominated by the left wing. That is a, that is a true statement. Publishing again dominated by the left. That is a true statement. Um, and scientists. And so, you know, I had a sympathy with it from the start because I think intellectual diversity is a really good thing. Um, and homogenous intellectual environments are, you know, do tend to become wrapped up in the narcissism of small differences where you're having arguments between the centre left and the hard left. You know, and there's all these people on the right that are just not, you know, not part of the conversation at all. But what happened was that there were also lots of straightforward conservatives in there. And there were some people who tipped into conspiracy theorists. So one of them would be Majid Nawaz who uh, was a former Islamist. He was in Hizbut Tahir. He then renounced that, reformed, became a kind of liberal commentator, stood as a Lib Dem candidate, I think, in the UK, and then and goes on an intellectual journey, particularly over COVID, which ends up with him being sacked from the radio station LBC for tweeting that COVID restrictions were a fascist coup. Um, and that's a pattern that you see quite often, is that people have a sort of something tips in their mind and they begin to see these grand patterns and as you said, I think you mentioned the Great Replacement. The other, which is the idea that white people are being replaced by immigrants in Europe in either a you know unintentional or intentional way, that's a very powerful conspiracy theory that's on the internet. The other one is the Great Reset, which is based on a, an actual plan by the World Economic Forum, which was basically kind of a build back better after COVID, but is seen as a sinister plot to insert globalist agents into individual political governments um, and pursue neoliberal policies. Uh, you know, and, and like all conspiracy theories, what's interesting about it is that there is a kind of there is always a grain of truth to them. There's something that they're picking up on. And one of them is the idea of, of globalization and ne neoliberalism. Um, and the fact that people are, you know, there is a kind of class of people who do go to Davos that's coming up like very soon and all go and sit around. Now I would argue they sit around and have quite boring panels about philanthropy and nothing ever really changes and have some fondue in the snow. Like, I don't think it's a sort of James Bond style plot to how they're going to, 
you know, infiltrate the world and, and take it over. It's fairly boring corporate lobbying. But I can see from the outside to people who don't have any power how, how it can appear like there's a group of people who all rule the world and they all get together in a ski resort and sort of issue their orders to each other. Yeah, I have a kind of a theory on this, which I'm going to inflict on you now, whether you want to hear it or not. It's actually kind of two slightly conjoined theories. As a journalist, obviously, I look look at the world through that prism. And one journalism and media is one of the areas of gatekeeping, which has been sort of broken down to some extent by these by these new forces and new new ways of of discourse. And I'm sure you remember back. 12 or 14 years ago, everybody was, or a lot of people, including me, were very enthusiastic about the idea of citizen journalism and opening everything out and the wisdom of the crowd and everybody would be able to make their contribution and it would turn into a conversation. And what they didn't realise was that citizen journalism wasn't going to be people going along and reporting on council meetings. It was actually going to be people bloviating with their worst opinions on subjects. It basically, citizen journalists meant there was going to be millions of opinion columnists around the world. And that connects to my other theory, which is that uh, in the fullness of time, all opinion columnists ultimately go mad. Um, and I think that's what we're now seeing at scale across the world, isn't it? Uh, well, you know, speaking of somebody who did write an opinion column for a Me while too. for the New Me States, too. Um, you know, I, I say this with love for my fellow opinion columnists, but it is a job that is superficially incredibly appealing from the outside. Like who wouldn't love the idea that if everybody has to listen to you wang on about what, you know, rather than you just shouting at the telly, you now get to shout into um, a newspaper and then people get to read it and think how clever you are. Like that's a very flattering uh, offer for anyone with a slight hint of narcissism. But you're right, there are, there's, there are forces that work on you, one of which is the kind of need to constantly be coming up with content and the other is the fact that, you know, um, you receive a huge, overwhelming amount of attention, some of it incredibly negative. So you do end up playing to the gallery and pandering to your base. And maybe, you know, you want to differentiate yourself from all the other opinion columnists out there. So maybe you kind of try something a bit spicier and then it gets spicier. And then before you know it, you know, you're arguing that lizards run the world because that's the kind of niche that uh, not only gets you some incredibly ardent fans, you know, some, I think a very good example of this is um, Russell Brand, who we cover in the first episode. And now, you know, I worked with him in the States when his guest at it. And he was always, again, an anti-establishment figure. You know, the theme of the issue was a revolution of consciousness. And that's when he gave that famous interview to Jeremy Paxman saying, you know, there's no point voting. They're all the same, essentially. And, you know, what he wanted instead was a revolution in this sort of unformless, chaotic, unstructured way. And what's happened is that as he has moved out of the mainstream. He now has a YouTube channel. He has a big deal with Rumble, which is an even less censored online platform. You know, he has developed this classic style, which is the which they call the just asking question style. And he goes, are we being told the full story about why Putin invaded Ukraine? Are we being told the full story about what's in the vaccines? And the answer is always, the answer is never, yes, we are being told the full story. It's actually very, the reporting on the ground from Ukraine is actually really good. Um, you know, all the COVID vaccines have now at this point been hugely tested on millions of people. And we're aware of the, you know, the downsides of them and the limitations of them. But we have really good evidence that they work to stop people dying at the rates they would have done without them. So he's a very good example of a kind of somebody who has, I think, has gone through that Internet polarization spiral. Yes, I agree with you that internet opinion columnists go mad. Oh, the other bit that everybody's now an opinion yeah. columnist. I mean, right. very few of these people, with a couple of honourable exceptions, are actually doing much in the way of original research. Well, that's how I felt. And that's one of the things that actually drove me to stop doing an opinion column and make the move that I did, you know, uh, into my current role, which is a staff writer at The Atlantic, because what I can do is reporting. And I've just come back from Florida where I've been, and I've been there last year as well. And actually doing that very bread and butter stuff 
of going to political rallies, listening to what people say, talking to people in the crowd. I just feel it's kind of nourishing in a way that reading some tweets and then having, you know, your own very glib opinion just isn't. And that's the bit that really bothers me. And I think a lot of the intellectual dark web and contrarian criticisms of the mainstream media are actually about criticisms of opinion columns. And there is very little awareness of or, uh, you know, gratitude for the people who do go in and do report the local council meeting where you find out that actually they've awarded the, can- you know, the council leader's son has got the contract to retarmac the road completely corruptly. All of that stuff or court reporting, you know, just the fact that all of that stuff has really been hollowed out by the internet. That bread and butter stuff about just letting you know what's going on in your community and what's happening to the money that you're paying in as taxes. That's the bit that's incredibly precious. And yeah, you're right. That I, there's not been, I would not say there's been an uptick in that in the last 10 years. There's been, in fact been a huge drop off in the amount of that kind of work that's going on. And so what, what you end up, is, it seems to me, without being too negative about it, is this kind of just vast amount of narcissistic like navel gazing and that the, the kind of you know bad incentives which drove opinion columnists mad 20 years ago, they're turbocharged by the way the dynamics of the internet work, both emotionally and in terms of the financial incentives, um, in terms of capturing an audience, building your audience, holding on to your audience. All the incentives are to to go further to the extreme all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think particularly with Twitter, you see what happens when you have people with personality problems who are given a huge amount of attention and actually worse than that, a huge amount of polarised attention. So one half of the crowd saying, you're the Messiah, thank God you're here to drop these truth bombs. And the other half saying, you're a fascist, you're a Nazi, you're a woke idiot, you're a, you know, whatever it is, you're a groomer, you're a, all of this kind of stuff. And it, and, and that, uh, you know, I wrote a very long piece about Jordan Peterson, who I interviewed in 2018, who subsequently has been through some really big mental health challenges and physical health challenges. And the premise of that really was that that polarizing attention just split him in, in two. And there's half of him that was, this you know, sweet, slightly eccentric um, clinical psychologist who had these interesting theories about Jungian symbolism in The Lion King. And there was the guy who you now see on Twitter saying, up oh, yours, woke moralists, we'll see who counsels who. And all of the incentives pulled him towards that guy, up yours guy, not here is my thoughts about how the Lion King reflects, you know, the beatable structure of <laughs> of the mind. And that, you know, that's a, that's a real that's a real shame. People become what what their audiences want them to be or need them to be. So you contrast him with somebody like Sam Harris, who also has a huge following on on the internet and was also seen as part of the intellectual dark web, whatever the hell that means. Really, I, I'm I'm still not entirely quite sure. But has sort of maintained what you might call some level of objectivity and addressing each case on its merits. Yeah, in episode five, we we talked to um, David Fuller, who actually quit his job at Channel 4 News because he was such a huge fan of Jordan Peterson and what he was doing. And he was so excited about the potential of the intellectual dark web to have these really big conversations about politics in its grandest form, about religion, about the meaning of life, you know, all of that stuff that he felt wasn't kind of being covered adequately. And the story of that episode is the story of his disillusion as that gets lost and the culture war just takes over and, and, and the people who are having these big, amazingly breathtakingly intellectual debates, as he felt, you know, instead just end up angrily tweeting 300 times a day. And Sam Harris is a good example, I think, of somebody who's resisted that. Like He has got a lot of incredibly um, controversial opinions. He's been in his fair share of internet controversies, but he hasn't let it I think he's because he's got a kind of slightly bullheaded approach to uh, criticism. He hasn't let it kind of completely deform him. And and the other bit we we haven't talked about in terms of journalism, which I think is useful, 
and it may be in politics, is the fact that you just hear so much more of the criticism. If you were an opinion columnist in the 90s, you maybe got some physical letters. What you didn't get was the instant that piece was published, people screaming at you that you were killing people. Um, and lots of people, you know, felt very martyred by that and have let it either have kind of leaned into that idea of being martyred or the other thing has happened that their writing has become crabbed and cowed. And I call it like you can feel the flinch in the sentence, the sort of please don't hurt me flinch. Yeah, there's a there's a quote from Nietzsche, which I think you, you, you use, which is um, battle not with monsters, lest ye become a monster. And if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. I know. I like. So I read a, a biography of Nietzsche on holiday this year, and it's it's a phenomenal story because he was an incredibly influential figure. I, I don't know if you know that he at some point he went completely mad. Uh, he started sending his friends letters saying he was Jesus, and then what finally broke his brain was seeing a horse being beaten in the street, and he just thought this this was intolerable cruelty. And then spent the remaining then sort of twenty years of his life basically completely unable to communicate with anyone. So he's a very interesting example of somebody who walked that line between brilliance and and madness. Um, mm. And I think lots of the people in the intellectual dark web kind of see themselves in that tradition of of their risking everything to to say these unsayable truths. But just to contrast, you know, um, James Lindsay, a member, sort of I, I intellectual dark web adjacent person I, I talked to in the episode, and Jordan Peterson, uh, you know, when they, they got banned, both of them were banned from Twitter and then reinstated under Elon Musk and immediately took to back to it, tweeting dozens and dozens of times a day churning through this content. Whereas when Musk took over and the changes kind of happened and it looked like Twitter was becoming much more liberal, Sam Harris just went, well, you know, I don't need this in my life. I'm off. And that typified to me just really fundamentally that what we see as politics, I think, is actually often personality. You know, he just didn't need that level of attention and reinforcement engagement to make him feel alive. He just went, I've got a very nice life with my meditation app and my podcast and talking to interesting people. I actually don't need to be screamed at by strangers. Psychologically, that's not a compulsion that I have. And as somebody who's always had a quite a compulsive relationship with Twitter, I, I appreciate that. You know, people get drawn to politics or journalism because they like the cut and thrust of debate. But those are often exactly the people who are least equipped to deal with the pressures of of what being, you know, well known on the internet comes brings along with it. Apart from all that, which I think is absolutely true about the kind of psychological factors, how much of this stuff is just a grift? <laughs> well, that is the eternal question. And actually, I would put it like this, I think. Some of it is grifty in the sense that people are buying things that are worthless or paying money for things that are, are worthless. I think very little of it is a grift in the sense of conscious rip-off merchants. I mean, to go back to Brian Frill's faith healer, right? Does that guy know that he's mm. he's a charlatan? It's an internal question, isn't it? And I am not sure that lots of these people do. I think maybe subconsciously they do. I think lots more of them think I'm here to help people and I've got stuff that can help people. And of course I need to make money. I need to support myself. So I don't, you know, some of the bits of crypto, I think are just, some of those people are just straight out scammers because they have been involved in previous financial scams. Like that's, their interest in crypto is not in the idea of a, you know, decentralized digital currency, but interested in, oh, this is what, there's a lot of money in this. And ditto, you know, I don't have any problem with saying someone like Alex Jones of Infowars, the conspiracy site, sells all these supplements that are like called things like Instahard and his Tangerine Manly. Like there's a lot of this sort of like for when the apocalypse comes, you want to be jacked and ready for it. And I don't know if he really believes any of that. I find it hard to believe that he thinks he, his herbal medicines are really going to prepare you for the apocalypse. I just think he sort of doesn't care I wouldn't be at all surprised to discover some telephone conversation where he discusses the fact that he thinks that his audience are kind of 
you know, falls for falling for all this stuff. Isn't that where all this stuff kind of bleeds into so many other walks of life that people wouldn't necessarily think of as being the new gurus, everything from some very prominent politicians who we can think of in the in, in the recent past to kind of micro level influencers of one sort or another. It's this it, it's basically this, this this brave new world in which new incentives, both economic and emotional, exist for people to express themselves. Yeah, I think it's really interesting when you to look at politicians about the fact that some more of them, I guess, have had a cult of personality around them. Um, in recent years. We have some very obvious examples of that. I think Donald Trump is one very obvious example. And then on the left, somebody like um, Jeremy Corbyn, you know, there was an attachment to him that was extraordinarily powerful and emotional. It's something that I talked to people about in my previous documentary, The Church of Social Justice. You know, he connected with people. I don't think people feel like that about Rishi Sunak, the current British Prime Minister. I think they think, if they're well disposed to him, they think, all right, he seems fairly sane. He seems to be getting on with the job. No massive crisis has devalued the pound for five minutes you know, I'm happy. Or if they don't like him, they think, oh, the Tories have run down the NHS and the public services. But no one thinks either he's the saviour or he's the devil, right? And and so that's been a very interesting to me to watch which politicians have been classic politicians and which of them have been kind of almost guru-like. Um, and I think I think when you when you talk to people in that initial summer of 2015, when Jeremy Corbyn was positive, there was a sort of revivalist element to it. People did feel that he had come to break through a paradigm of politics that was completely broken, that he was a revolutionary. There was something a bit more exciting to it than just I'm going to you know put five percentage points of tax on the rich. There was a feeling of a whole change that was going to happen. Yeah. But on the other hand, when I look when I look at the series and I say there are, there are eight parts in it, um, if one is to ascribe political motivations, and some of them aren't entirely clear on the surface, but they're kind of there just under the surface. So as you say, you know, the libertarian tendencies of people who are into crypto or the misogyny of what you describe as the as the manosphere, more of them seem to, to skew right than to skew left or progressive. Or even the one you have, a, you have a fascinating and very uh, entertaining uh, one, which is about these self-flagellating upper middle class white women uh, who go along to dinner parties to be abused for their white privilege and pay thousands of dollars for the uh, for the privilege. But in a way, that didn't quite seem to me to be guru doom in the same way as it is in in some of the other episodes. It seemed to be a different kind of a process. Oh right, okay. Well, I mean, I saw episodes four and five as kind of a of a pair, really, about what just yeah. happened on the left and right in politics. And as you say, so episode five is the intellectual dark web, and that's the kind of anti-establishment energy on the on the right of politics. But I felt that what's happened on the left of politics, particularly in America over the last few years, is this very heavy identity-based politics that has ideas of kind of like white privilege as sort of original sin. And therefore you can kind of, you have to confess to it. And you have, and therefore that's when your journey of absolution can, can begin. And some of that also came with the fact that, you know, we talked about diversity trainings in there and then things like the implicit um, bias test. Now, those are interesting tools but people have made wild overclaims for them. They have become embedded in corporate structures in a way that far outruns the evidence that they can change racist attitudes and might identify racist attitudes. So it did seem to me there was, again, a sort of quasi-religious belief in, in that not, you know, we, I subscribe to the principles of anti-racism, but that this particular form was the vehicle for it. And if you question that, it was the same as basically questioning the point of anti-racism at all. But I can see that you, you know, that, the individual f- figures are operating in a quite different way. You know, I, I personally liked Ibram Ken- X. Kendi. He's a fellow Atlantic writer, so I was predisposed to like him, I guess. But, you know, he's hated on the right. They see him as the absolute 
guru of you know kind of the uh, this sort of teaching about white privilege and about equity rather than equality that's happened over the last couple of years but um again the, the the race to dinner thing which as you describe is i mean that is a fair description of it people white women pay thousands of dollars to have two trainers come over to the house serve them dinner and, and tell them that you know that they're racist and in denial about it again i feel it's something that a would only work for women and b would only really work for americans or sometimes canadians i i would be intrigued to see someone try it in macclesfield or you know cornwall or edinburgh even and just it feels very american i suppose what somebody particularly coming from let's say the intellectual dark web or or right of center position might say looking at that is that i mean i think you remark or you suggest that Ibrahim X Kennedy has retained more sanity than some other protagonists in the series because he has an actual job in an actual university doing actual teaching um and i suppose the response to that is that is because liberals and progressives um control the, uh, the the heights of the intellectual economy in be that in universities or be that in media and so that the other ones see correctly see themselves in an insurgency because they don't have those jobs in universities or those columns in the new york times or whatever it might be oh yeah and that's why as i say that i do have sympathy with i think the uh in, with the intellectual dark webs uh argument that there was a lack of intellectual diversity in some of the big as you say the heights of american culture particularly in some respects of british culture i think you can be um, you know, you can be a communist and work in a British university. You can't be an equivalently somebody who's who's that far on on the right. Um, you know, that's that's just a that is a skew. And I think um, Jonathan Haidt in the Coddling and Greg Kanyoff in the Coddling of the American Mind go through all these professions that have polarised. And the other side of that is that they argue that professions like the police have become much more right wing. Um, and that's interesting too because I I suspect it's to do with a kind of move away much more geographical social mobility right rather than the fact is that you grow up in a town and you take one of the jobs that's available in that town people are now sort of sorting themselves much more heavily and one of the ways that they're sorting themselves is you know blue areas in america get bluer red areas get redder um and the same thing has happened in, in britain I, I suspect the same thing has happened yeah if you look at the if you look at ireland you know dublin is far more liberal than the rural areas surrounding it right like, sure. so people so young socially liberal people will move to the city, making it even more socially liberal. I mean, that's always been the case, it should be said, but it's becoming more extreme is really what's Right, happening. exactly. Yeah, and, and, and that brings us really to the final episode, which is a sort of a look forward. And of course, given the given what's gone before, the, the person you go to first of all in the final episode is, is an astrologer to, to find out what's going to happen next. Yeah, and a medium. She has dead people in her living room, she says, um, which... <laughs> yeah, she's she's, multi, she's multitasking, actually, isn't she? I, I've, I just, I find it, I'm, I, I don't believe in astrology or indeed in mediumship. Um, so I find it quite funny to be like how annoying it must be to be the partner of a medium being like I told you that was going to happen I just feel like it's a recipe for sort of endless domestic disputes but um, she knew Covid was going to happen apparently well yes in that classic astrologer way of well I didn't know it was in it but I knew there would be something big that would happen and you're like well you know there's like that great line about you know the economist predicting nine out of the last five recessions you know it's that if you predict the bad things are going to happen eventually you're going to be right and actually most of the time somewhere somewhere something bad is happening but um, yeah, we talked to her, but we also talked to Peter Turchin, who's a complexity scientist affiliated to the University of Vienna and the University of Oxford, who had this interesting idea about the structure of societies and that societies eventually kind of collapse in on, on themselves. It's not necessarily external pressures. Um, and he thought this was going to be a, a pretty rough decade. Now, that's, you know, I, I'm feeling much more optimistic about that than I was a year ago. 
But I think it's very hard not to see, for example, the race to dinner and the kind of performative flagellation about white privilege as, you know, it, that feels to me like a response to Trumpism. And lots of people said, you know, I really became energised about this because of the fact that we had elected, you know, a, a president who said these things about Mexicans or whatever it might be. So there has been a, a, that sort of polarisation and the sort of sense of uncertainty. You know, again, the manosphere people that I talk to, these anti-feminists, that is a, a reaction to the idea that gender roles are, you know, that they feel that gender roles are, are fluid and that they don't, you know, they don't know where where they are anymore. So I do think there is a feeling that lots of this stuff has to do with this is how we work through anxiety as a culture, um, that we look to we look to profits to tell us that here's how we're going to go forward. This is how it will all be solved. But they do seem to be, I mean, and maybe this is this has always been a, a, a human reality, but it seems to be more the case right now. They do seem to be prophets of doom. Yeah, I'm fast, I'm consistently fascinated by this because, you know, if you subscribe to the Stephen Pinker thesis that the world has never been less violent, you know, if, if, if I said to you, do you want to live now in Ireland or do you want to live in Ireland in 1640 or 1280 or AD 640? It, it's, it's not a hard choice, is it? I mean, I'm sure the countryside would look beautiful, but you would be living a life with far fewer material comforts, far more likely to be devastated by war or famine. You know, so we are living these lives in the West of incredible comfort and affluence. And yet people, and I wonder if that is specifically the reason why there is a kind of flirtation with, you know, with doom, the idea that it all must be, um, you know, coming crashing down around us. And the rejoinder to that is, no, come on, climate change is real. It is an incredibly existential threat. And I, I think that's true. And it's worth emphasising that you know, that is something that needs to be taken absolutely seriously. It will cause huge misery and suffering over the course of this um, this century, even with the mitigation measures that you know we might be able to get through. But that's also how people felt in the 60s about the atomic bomb. You know, there is a you, you wouldn't. That's the nature of human life is that it's incredibly hard to predict what's going to happen next and you might die at any moment. So. There is a kind of, I wonder in the same way that people watch horror films, there's something cathartic about that. I wonder if there is a, a feeling among people who are quite affluent that they like to sort of de, sort of luxuriate in the idea of doom to some extent. But that's my half-formed, half-formed, probably for offensive thesis on, on that. No, offensive, but quite convincing to me anyway, I think. I mean, I think I mean, you're absolutely right in terms of the, you know, the, the, the quality of the life that, that lots of people, and not just in the Western world, in, in large parts of the rest of the world uh, as well have now in, in comparison to others. But there is, um, I'm just trying to think of exactly how to articulate this as a last question. This does seem to be rooted in this whole phenomenon which you cover in the series seems to be rooted in a, a sense of dislocation in Western society in general. And one could put forward lots of reasons for that. One might be a collapse of previous belief systems, not just religious ones, but but political ones as well. One might be certain economic forces which are underlying things. One might be what people talk about as this Gutenberg-type revolution that's been happening in communications. But there is a general sense that things are getting worse rather than better and that things might get a lot worse. And it seems to me to be stronger than it used to be, but I'm not sure what you think of that. No, I agree with you. And I and I think it's, it's very difficult to untangle, isn't it? Here's my personal experience based on all the things that I read. And then the secondary question, and you know, does everyone else think that too? And then the secondary question is, are things actually getting, like how worried should we be? You know, we have this conversation a lot when covering the Trump presidency at the Atlantic, you know, about, how, you know, are you being chicken little and saying that the sky is falling in? Or do you really need to ring an alarm because American democracy is a lot more fragile than it turns out anybody thought and the right wrecking ball can, it turns out, you know, slam through a huge amount of it. And the scene, you know, the same thing happened with COVID. 
to some extent, you have to be very alarmist at the start, take the measures to mitigate it, and then you will possibly, in retrospect, look like you were overreacting. But if you hadn't reacted at all, the consequences would be much worse. It's really hard to answer those those kind of questions. But um, but my own personal sense is I feel people are pretty gloomy at the moment, um, and I you know, and I think that is through a general sense that things aren't getting better from one generation to the next. I think mm. probably the previous generation. There was, yeah, and, and actually we have good statistics to support that, right? So people my age in their late 30s will not be as rich by retirement age as our parents were. Um, you know, that's that kind of the level of sort of social mobility that happened through the second half of the 20th century. That engine has has kind of really shuddered to a bit of a halt. So people don't necessarily feel that their children are going to live better lives than they are. And they've got some reason to, to think that. Um, so, yeah, it, it does feel... It does feel slightly gloomy out there. And then that, well, then someone emerges a shining messiah to tell you that here's the one true way to out of the quagmire. I guess you're primed to then listen to them much more. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the other part of it is, is this idea that, which I certainly feel, is that we talk an awful lot about these phenomena which are driven by something called social media, which has only been around for 12 or 13 years. And we really don't know where we are with this really profound revolution in the way that humans communicate ideas to each other. And also, I kind of increasingly feel whether or not social media was, as long as that would be a blip, that's going to make me like one of these people who's sort of hanging around in the 90s going, I don't think this internet thing is going to take off. But social media in its particularly toxic current form, yeah. right? The one thing I think I've felt after Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter is that Twitter is just a lot less fun to use now. And many of the mechanisms that made it so powerful and made things go so viral are actually quite fragile. And the other thing is really interesting. When I talk to my nephews and nieces who are, you know, ranging in age from sort of 20 downwards, they find all this kind of hyperactive sort of liberalism of the last couple of years kind of boring because it's just they've, they've kind of grown up with it. Right? It's not a to them. It's not a revolt. The idea that you can sort of publicly shame people for people in my generation. That was a kind of an intoxicating power that you were suddenly handed out of nowhere that suddenly we can all go and shout at the supermarket for having put a sexist child's T-shirt out. But that, as that becomes sort of normalised and it happens again and again and again, it loses some of its power. So I think you're right. I think to come back in 10 years' time and have this conversation about the structure of the internet, because you're right, so much of the gurus is about the, the economic, and particularly economic incentives of the internet. You know, lots of these people, whatever their a sensible you know, thing that they talk about are, are also selling wellness and crypto because it's unregulated medicine, unregulated money. Those are the financial engines. And... Are those going to be still the, the engines of, of profit in the in the next ten years? It's it's entirely possible, particularly in the case of crypto, it really might not be at all. So yeah, I agree with you on that. Like it's very I, I, there's a story here about psychology, but there's also a story here that's about technology and the particular excesses that any particular type of technology creates. Well, we'll definitely have you back in the podcast in 10 years' time to discuss that. Or, of course, otherwise we'd be laughing uproariously at the idea that podcasts would exist uh, in, in 10 yeah. years' time. One or the other will turn out to be true anyway, but I highly recommend Helen's series, The New Gurus. You can get it on the BBC Sounds app or on all the usual podcast platforms. This podcast has been produced by Declan Conlon and it's going to be engineered by JJ Vernon. And we'll be back with you very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye and thanks very much for listening. <laughs>